Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. It's been so good. Hey, would you take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. If you came in after we made announcements, there is a connection card in your seat. If you'd fill that out during the service, we're going to take those up at the end of the service. So just want to give you a heads up on that because the person next to you is going to ask for it. So uh, if you'll fill that out, we'd love it if you do that. You'd honor us by doing it. John chapter 1, I started a serving series really at the beginning of the year when we started our 21 days of prayer focus. And I started a sermon series entitled Grow, Becoming the Person God Meant for You to Be. And here's what we know, God wants us to be, look like Jesus. Our, our whole goal is to be conformed to the image of his son. That doesn't happen automatically just because I'm a believer. It happens as I grow in Christ and I, I implement what we in Christianity call spiritual disciplines. Just like physical disciplines of exercise and eating right. There are spiritual disciplines because here's what we know. God's vision for our lives is greater than our vision for our lives. God has bigger plans for us than we have for us. That doesn't happen automatically. We have to grow in Christ to get there. And so we've talked about the spiritual disciplines of reading, read up, pray up. Those are kind of self-explanatory. Church up, serve up. Last week I preached on give up, speaking of our financial um, uh, discipline. And you came back. That is awesome. Thank you for coming back uh, this week. And so uh, this week I want to preach on this subject. We're quickly coming to a close, but I want to preach on this subject, speak up. Speak up. It is the spiritual discipline of sharing the gospel, inviting other people to church. We'll, we'll, in a moment, we'll stand and read the scripture, but before we do that, let me kind of set the scene for where we are. How many of you have ever tried to sell a car on your own? Let me see your hand. Honest, be honest. You tried to, oh, almost all of us. So you're going to love this. There's this guy in Israel named Eugene Romanovsky who had a 1996 Suzuki Vitara that he needed to sell. 996, 2006, it's 23 year old car that he tried to sell this year. And so he happens to work for a media company and, and he put together a video and I could tell you about it, but I want to show it to you. And I hate to, this video is almost two minutes long and I hate to take two minutes out of my sermon, but it's worth watching. Tell me if you've ever gone to this extreme to sell a 23 year old car. I love that. He concludes it. It's, it's ran with the dinosaurs and been on the moon. He concludes it with automatic windows at the end. That is awesome. So see, you're a terrible car salesman, right? Like hey, this guy's got it down. I love this. He put this video out on the internet with the hashtag buy my Viterra and it got 3 million views. And he sold the 1996 vehicle. He sold it to a guy that while he was parked at a coffee shop saw the for sale sign in the window across the street. <laughs> that's not a joke. Somebody saw it parked on the street with a for sale sign in the window and that's who bought 
his 23-year-old car. And I tell you that story because I think that's how our minds are sometimes when it comes to sharing the gospel. I think sometimes in our minds, we think that we have to produce a Hollywood-style video to get the gospel across, that we've got to be Hollywood in order to share our faith, when in reality, it's more like a guy seeing a sign in our window. Because the fact is, being an effective gospel witness is a discipline. It is a discipline as much as reading your Bible, as much as prayer, as much as giving, as much as it is coming to church. And you have to ask yourself this morning, how committed are you to sharing the gospel? How committed are you to sharing your faith with those that are around you? Because now we're living in a day and an age where we're not even sure we should be sharing the gospel. Barna just released a new study. And they surveyed millennials when it comes to evangelism. And 47% of millennials, or get this, half of millennials said this. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. It is wrong to share your faith. 50 percent of millennials. Barna dug in a little bit more and uh, millennials were saying that they have a resistance to judging people, that they mistakenly believe that if you share your faith with someone who doesn't believe, that you are judging them for what they do believe. Can I tell you this, that you sharing your faith is not judging them, but it is saving them from the judgment that's coming one day. I mean, if you saw someone about to take a poisonous pill and, and you said, stop, that pill is poisoning, is that judgment or is that love and compassion? So I want us to define a phrase today. We hear this phrase, especially in Baptist circles a lot. We hear it and it's called leading someone to Christ. I had a conversation with a, an evangelist a few weeks ago and, and we talked about what does it mean to lead someone to Christ and uh, he, he, we kind of came to this conclusion that, and I think this would be true in all, uh, all of evangelical Christianity that leading someone to faith, if you sat down and share the gospel with someone and they pray to receive Christ, have you led them to Christ? The answer is yes. But if you invite someone to church and they hear a preacher share the gospel and they become believers then, is that leading them to Christ? Yes. If you build a relationship with someone who's far from God and through the course of that relationship you share your faith with them and they trust Christ as Savior, is that leading them to Christ? Yes. And so here's what that tells me is all of us can lead people to Christ. Well, how do we get started? What I want us to do today is, as we dive in the scripture, I want us to look at the, the best witness we have as an example. His name was Jesus. And in John chapter 4, I may have said John 1 earlier, I don't remember, but John chapter 4, we have the story of a fantastic witnessing experience by Jesus himself. So I'm going to do something if if you're new to our church, I don't normally read 42 verses in the morning. I normally read one or two, but we need to grab the whole story today. So would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word? And I want us to look in John chapter four, beginning in verse number one. Now it's, they're quick verses, so follow along with me. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and parted, departed again to Galilee. But he needed, verse 4, needed to go through Samaria. 
So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Verse 13. Jesus in answer said to her, whoever drinks of the water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one with whom you now is not with whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I per- perceive that you are a prophet. Understatement of the chapter, right? Like, um, yeah, yeah, he is. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, verse 27, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, she didn't have a great relationship with the women. Verse 29, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, his disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And who reaps receive wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I send you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have not entered into their labors. And then verse 39, and the many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that ever I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Thank you. You may be seated. So we see Jesus here, and he's dealing with the crowds, thousands. You look through your Bible, you see, I'll talk about it in a moment, he's always dealing with crowds, but here in John chapter 4 and other places, we see where Jesus took time out for individual people that in the midst of all of his big ministry opportunities, Jesus took the time out to go out of his way to 
orchestrate an encounter with one woman who was making all the wrong decisions in life and was probably really down on herself. So I want us to look at this story we just read. Now, I, again, I, I don't normally read 42 verses, but I wanted to read that so you got the totality of the story because I'm kind of going to go from beginning to end. And there, there are a thousand sermons in here, but let me just preach this one today to help us learn how to speak up. How do we develop the spiritual discipline of, of sharing the gospel? How do we develop the spiritual discipline of speaking up? Number one is this. Here's what Jesus did. He had a plan for all and a passion for one. He had a plan for all and a passion for one. Look in John chapter four, look at verse number four. The Bible says, but he needed, needed to go through Samaria. Jesus is on his way from Judea to Galilee where he's done a lot of miracles before. As a matter of fact, almost all of his disciples are coming from Galilee. So Jesus is headed to a crowd of thousands. As a matter of fact, in just a a few pages from now, uh, in just a moment from now, Jesus is going to be doing the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Scholars estimate maybe 25,000 people are there when Jesus does that. And so Jesus is about to head to a ministry of feeding thousands of people. He's about to head to a ministry where he's going to be a really, uh, I hate to say it this way, he's going to be a rock star in just a minute. And most of the time when we're headed to an amazing destination, most of the time we kind of uh, bulldoze our way through the journey. I mean, let's be honest. If you're on your way to Disney World, you don't stop in Adel, Georgia and tour the town, Right? If you're on your way to Disney World, you're on your way to Disney World. The car is loaded, the kids are hyper, and here we go. Jesus is on his way to Disney World to ministry. Thousands of people, but on his way there, he stops and he talks to one person. And here's what we understand from Jesus, that though Jesus had a plan for thousands of people, on his way there, Jesus had a passion for one, and we've got to stop and talk about that. From Judea to Galilee, there were three main routes. The shortest route was directly through Samaria, but the Jews did not travel through Samaria. As a matter of fact, it was not impossible, but it was definitely uncommon for a Jew to take the shortest route from Judea to Galilee and go through Samaria. Why? In 722, here's a little world history for you. Uh, The Persians carried away the Jews out of Jerusalem, and that's where Daniel, by the way, was carried uh, to tie some Bible verses together for you. But they left a small remnant of Jews in Israel in Jerusalem. Then they deported what the Israelites would have called pagans, unbelievers, into Jerusalem. And over the process of time, the Jews and the pagans intermarried and the Jews really started worshiping the the false god and they, they became the Samaritans. Well, it came back in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in your Bible. The Jews were allowed to go back to Israel, so they came back to Israel. And when the Jews got back to Israel, they demanded that the Samaritans divorce their families and Return to what they called a pure faith. And of course, the Samaritans said no, and the, and the strife and the rivalry began so much so that the Samaritans began reporting the Jews to the Persians and say to the Persian, the Jews are trying to overthrow their throne. Then it got worse. In about 400 BC, the Samaritans built their own temple. You heard that lady talk about it. 
on Mount Gerizim, they built their own temple, which was just heresy to the Jews. And so Mount Gerizim is where it traditionally had been. The Jews had moved it to Shallow. And so now the Samaritans had a temple and the Jews had a temple and they were not getting along. And about 122 BC, the king of the Jews, a guy by the name of John Hyrcanus, came along and destroyed the Samaritan temple. And I'm telling you, it was on like Donkey Kong. Like they did not like one another. And so by the time we get to the day of Jesus, the animosity and the strife is still so thick you can cut it with a knife. And so the Jews, instead of taking the shortest route to Galilee, would often go around Samaria. And so in verse number four, when Jesus said to his disciples, I have to go through Samaria, there would have been some talk among themselves. And when Jesus stopped and talked to a Samaritan woman, it would have just been unbelievable. She even acknowledged, what are you doing talking to me? And here's what he was doing. Jesus had a passion for one person to come to know him as Savior. Can I say to you that in our lives, it is great for believers to care about the masses, and we talk about the 1% all the time, and it's great that here at Peavine, we baptize over 100 people every year and see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is amazing, and we talk about reaching 4,970 people or 4% or 1% of Peavine City. All that is great, but I can tell you what is greater is when you have a passion for one. Can I tell you this? There may be multiple ones in your life. You, you may have a family that is your one. You may have a friend that is one. You may have a co You may have five, but they're your ones. And those are the people that you are passionate about. Those are the people that are in your life are unsaved or unchurched and they're far from God. And you have a passion for your ones. And listen, it's easy in Christianity to talk about big numbers and stuff and hundreds and thousands and all that. But here's the deal. It matters to the one. And here's what every Christian has got to have. We, if we're going to lead people to Jesus, it can't be us just talking about the hundreds. It can't even be us talking about the dozens. It's got to be every one of us passionate about the ones that God has placed in our lives. It dawned on me this week that uh, I did not help the men out last week. I try to do this and remind you when important days are coming up because it was Valentine's Day uh, this past Thursday. And I didn't tell you, man, I hope you remembered on your own. I try to help you out a little bit. Valentine's Day is a big deal. As a matter of fact, let me show you what a big deal it is. The total expected consumer spending on Valentine's Day, $18.2 billion. That's a bunch of money. Hey, who spends the most? I love this. The average by relationship. Here's who spends the most. Number one, engaged people spend the most on one another. An average of $88 per person on a gift. Because, you know, you hadn't sealed the deal yet, right? Like you're afraid they might back out. So $88. Then number two is in a relationship. That means you're not engaged, but you want to get engaged. So you're having to shell out some dough and you're spending $69 per person. And then number three, well, that's sad. Married people, $55 a piece. I don't know if you notice the trend here, but it's going down a little bit and, uh, and flip that. But the, my favorite one's number four, single people. I love it, y'all. Just go splurge on yourself. I don't need no relationship, no stinking relationship, right? I'm going to go out by myself. Love that. 
Save your money. The average U.S. consumer is expected to spend $116.21, get this, on Valentine's Day gifts, meals, and entertainment. And men, men, we spend double what women spend, $158 to $75. Give the man a hand, all right? Come on, guys, give yourself a hand. Some of you are like, yeah, I forgot it was Valentine's Day. I get it. What's your favorite Valentine's Day gift? Somebody guess? Chocolate, candy, or other food treat. This is my favorite stat I'm putting up here. Most popular Valentine's Day retailer. Somebody tell me. Walmart. Somebody else? Walgreens. No. For some of you, it's the stop and rob on the way to your house, right? Like you're grabbing a plastic rose out of the cash re- from the cash register there. It's Walmart, right? That's a little sad, man. Um, we go for quantity, not quality. That's what we do at Walmart. Here's another one. Walmart makes 1,400 Valentine's greeting cards, 14 diff- 1,400 different cards. And the U.S. Greeting Card Association estimates that approximately 190 million Valentines are sent each year in the U.S. And by the way, who knew there was a U.S. Greeting Card Association, right? 190 million. 190 million people on Valentine's Day get a card. But I'm not concerned about 190 million. I'm concerned about three. I have a wife and two daughters. I'll be honest. I don't care if y'all get anything. I need my wife and two daughters to get something. So I took care of my wife. This year, I gave her a card and a gift the day before Valentine's Day. I called it a pre-Valentine's Day gift. I gave her a gift on Valentine's Day, and then she has gifts coming after Valentine's Day. You said, you really crushed Valentine's. I didn't. It's the first time I've ever done it, but I'm, I'm, I'm hedging because I'll do something dumb one year, and I want to be able to say, you remember 2019, I got you the gift before Valentine's Day and after and on. So just let's forget about this one. You know, I'm trying to build up. And then and my daughters, my two daughters, I order them something called uh, Sherry's Berries. I don't know if you've heard of that or not. And you send strawberries. And so my oldest daughter lives and works in downtown Atlanta. And so I had them ship uh, uh, Sherry's Berries to her. And I'll be honest with you. Has anybody ever done Sherry's Berries before? Yeah, so you get like six chocolate-covered strawberries. And, and Sherry, S-H-A, she has about $1.50 invested in those strawberries. Uh, but then she charges... $26 for them, but wait, you're not done. And then um, she charges uh, $15 for delivery, and then they charge $10 just because it's Valentine's Day. No, no reason, just Valentine's Day tax. And then they charge you $15 for guaranteed morning delivery because they'll tell you if you don't guarantee morning delivery, it could be 8 or 10 o'clock at night before they get them. So you have to, so $1.50 in berries turns out to be about $70 when everything's added up to it. But I did it. I ordered them a week before Valentine's Day. And my daughter in downtown Atlanta sent me a text and said, Dad, I love my uh, strawberries. These are awesome. And, and Michaela, who sits right here, Michaela had sent me a text that morning. It was the sweetest Valentine's text from a daughter to a dad. I, I'll cherish it forever. It was so sweet, but she didn't say anything about berries. And so I never heard from her. And about 2 o'clock, I asked her, I said, did you get my gift? And she said, no, I've not gotten anything from you. And let me refer you to the previous phrase, guaranteed morning delivery. So I called Cherry's Berries. I stayed on hold 20 minutes, which, by the way, is not a calming 20 minutes for me. 
I finally got somebody on the phone. I said, here's the deal. My oldest daughter's in Atlanta. She got strawberries. My youngest daughter, she's right here. And, and they said, oh, we're so sorry. They have been weather delayed. Well, I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box, but I can look out the window, right? And there was no weather at all on Thursday. And I said, hey, ma'am, I don't know what you're talking about, but there is no weather problems here in North Georgia, Fort Oglethorpe, where I'm trying to get these, these delivered to my daughter. And she said, well, we'll give you your $14.99 back. I said, I don't want my $14.99 back. I want all my money back, and I want my daughter to get her berries that were guaranteed morning delivery. And she said, well, there was bad weather in Philadelphia. And I'm sure it was cold in Alaska. And I don't know what that has to do with my strawberries. <laughs> they have anything to do with my strawberries. I, I don't care what the weather in Philadelphia was. And then she's like, well, they came out of New Jersey. Again, don't care what's going on in New Jersey. All I know is this, you guaranteed morning delivery. And she said, sir, we have thousands of berries to deliver today. And sometimes they get, I said, well, then change the wording on the website. It is not guaranteed morning delivery. It is we will do our best to get it there if you'll pay us enough money delivery. She said, I'll give you all your money back. Thank you. Now, I want my strawberries delivered. <laughs> Sorry, I, I relived it for a moment, and I, I, need a, I need a minute. She got her strawberries about 4.30 at the school. She finally did get them. And I'm thrilled that they have thousands of strawberries to deliver. But I had a passion for one order that needed delivered. There was one. I'm glad you have a plan for thousands and 190 million people, but I had a passion for one. Can I tell you, that needs to be the mindset of every Christian. We want hundreds of people coming to faith in Christ, but we also have these ones that are in our lives that we need to be overly passionate about. And that leads me to ask you this morning, who is your one? Who are your ones? Who are those people in your life that you are going to be inconvenienced and go out of your way to make sure they hear the gospel? Who is the one in your life that you're praying for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ? Who is the one that you're inviting them to come to church with you? Who is you're one that you're sharing the gospel with, that you're loving on them, that you're building relationship with, that you're trying to lead them to Jesus. Who is the one you're passionate about? It is time that we develop the spiritual discipline and speak up. People's eternity depends on it. Not only did we learn from Jesus, he had a plan for all and a passion but for one, but number two, we learned this. He turned an everyday conversation into a gospel conversation. He turned an everyday conversation into a gospel conversation. Here, here's what it said in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love that. Here it is in, in, in verse number seven. Jesus has asked her for a drink of water. And the next thing you know, after they, he asked her for a drink of water, they are talking about living water, eternal life, spiritual blessings, family crisis, spiritual matters. Jesus took a simple question, can I have a drink of water? Can I have a glass of water? And Jesus leveraged that into a gospel conversation. Can I say this to you? Sometimes we think leading people to Christ that we don't have what it takes. That it takes a Bible college or seminary degree or we have to answer all the questions about all the things that nobody knows the answers to. Can I tell you this? Preachers don't know the answer to all the questions either. I don't know where Cain got his wife. 
I don't know how many wings a seraphim has off the top of my head, I guess, like you can. We don't have the answers to all the questions. There's no secret tool that you have to have. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's harder being a preacher because the moment people find out you're a preacher, the fences go up and the walls are built and here's the trouble. When a preacher starts having the conversation, the conversation gets more difficult. Can I tell you what the most successful method of leading people to Jesus is? However you define leading people to Jesus. It's when you go out in your domain, you go to school, and you turn an everyday conversation into a gospel conversation. You go to work, you turn an everyday conversation into a gospel conversation. You go out in your community, you go to the rec department, you go to your family, you go in everyday life. When you listen to the hopes of people and you lead them to Jesus, you listen to people's dreams and you lead them to Jesus, you listen to people's heartaches and you lead them to Jesus. When you turn everyday conversations into gospel conversations, that makes all the difference in the world. We can do that in other areas of life. Like, like your average sports fan can do that about sports. I, I looked on a website called English Club and they gave me the, the uh, top six adjectives used in American English. And so let me prove to you we can parlay anything into sports. For example, number one adjective is good. So somebody uses the word good, I could say, boy, the Braves are going to be good this year. Right? That's easy. Number two, new. I can't say, wait to see the new players the Braves have signed. Number three, first, it's going to be a tight race for first place in the division. Y'all follow me? Last, the Marlins are going to finish last, though, no doubt. Number five, long, but it's a long season, less 162 games. Let's wait and see what happens. And number six, great. I think the Braves are good, but I don't know if they're great yet. No, 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 just to, for practice, we can do it again about sports. Good, how about this? The dogs are good, Tennessee stinks. See how easy that is? See how easy that is? How about this new? The dogs have some good new players this year. Tennessee stinks. How, how about this? First, uh, the dogs will finish first in the SEC East and... There you go. See, God's moving this morning. Number four, Tennessee will finish last. Number, number five, it'll be a long time before Tennessee is as good as Georgia. Why? They stink. And then number six, UGA is great. And, well, you get the picture, right? You got it down now, right? We can do that in so many areas of life. It's time we started speaking up and doing it with the gospel. When people talk about their pain, turn it into a gospel conversation. When people pour out their hearts, turn it into a gospel conversation. When people talk about their families, their dreams, their finances, their life, listen, the most popular topic in the world today is American politics, and I am so tired of it. Yeah. And when people want to talk politics, do it. And let them know your hope is not in Congress or in the White House, but it's in Jesus Christ alone. Turn everyday conversations into gospel conversations. The third thing Jesus teaches us is this. It's about obedience, not outcome. It's about obedience and not outcome. And here's what he said in verse number 36. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. I'll show you that picture in a minute. May rejoice together. Jesus said the harvest is white and ready, and can I say this? That applies to our culture. There has never been a culture in America that's more ready for Jesus than the culture we live in today. 
And Jesus said there's two types of people who receive rewards, those who sow and those who reap. The one who sows is the one who speaks up about the gospel, invites people to church, tells them about Jesus, but nobody engages with them. They would not be a success, so to speak. The one who reaps is the one who speaks up and they, the person does come to church or the person does come to Christ. And here's what Jesus saith, both are successful. Why? It's not about the outcome. It's about the obedience, your obedience. When you speak up and share the gospel or invite people to church, however you're trying to lead them to Christ, they or may or may not engage, but you are planting seeds that somebody else may harvest later on. And can I tell you this? The fact is, if you have a loved one, a family member, coworker, friend, or a neighbor who gets saved, we don't care who reaped. We just care that they're now going to spend eternity with Christ. And can I, can I tell you this? When you're standing on the right side of Judgment Day, you may remember, you probably will, who, who led you to Christ, but you're not worried about the specifics. You're just glad you're on the right side. And the truth be known, it's not because of the influence of just one person in all probability in your life. It's the influence of a group of people. I just finished a book, a fascinating book. If you like his, history, it's called Lucky 666, The Impossible Mission. Now, don't let the 666 scare you or that number scares us. It was the tail number on a B-17 bomber in World War II. The tail number was 41-2666. It tells the story of Jay Zemer and what became known as the Eager Beavers, who were the most decorated pilot plane team in World War II. They flew a B-17 bomber, which was called the Flying Fortress. Boeing didn't name it the B-17, but when a newspaper called it the Flying, uh, didn't name it the Flying Fortress, but when a newspaper called it that, they trademarked it immediately. It became known as the Flying Fortress. Jay Zemer and his team uh, were in the uh, Pacific uh, region, and they flew a photography mission, just to sum up the book. That was the most dangerous mission in the Pacific Theater in World War II, and when they came back, one crewman had died. Jay spent a year in the hospital, and that was their plane when it returned. There's the cockpit. Jay's feet were hanging out of the plane as he was flying it on the way back. Here, here's what a B-17 looks like intact. The B-17 was the workhorse of World War II. A B-17 dropped more ordnance on, uh, in Europe and in the Pacific Theater than any other plane that we had. And a B-17 has a 10-member crew, a pilot, a co-pilot, an engineer, a, a navigator, a bombardier, or a photographer. The engineer was also a gunner, had a radio operator who had to know all about the extensive radio equipment, and he was a gunner. And then they had a Four gunners who all they did were fire 50 caliber machine guns at, uh, in the Pacific Theater at Japanese Zeros that were coming in. There was a ball turret gunner, a left side gunner, a right side gunner, and a tail gunner. You didn't even see the tail gunner's machine guns sticking out. You see them in several places on there. Jay had equipped his B-17 with uh, 16 guns instead of just six for that run. And when they landed... And they, Jay spent over a year in the hospital before he recovered, lived to be in his 80s. But when they landed, it wasn't just Jay who got the reward. 
the entire ten men, even the one who died, posthumously received the reward. Why? Because it was a team effort to fly a B-17. One person could not do it alone. Would you close your Bibles with me this morning? Can I tell you this, when it comes to leading people to faith in Jesus Christ, it's kind of like a B-17. It's not, it's not about outcome. It's about obedience. Don't worry about the outcome when you're speaking up for the gospel. The gospel will do its work. You may invite someone to church and they may not come, but that invitation is never in vain. You may share the gospel and they may never receive Christ. They may never believe, but that, inv- that, that sharing is never in vain. You have planted seeds either way because it's not about the outcome. For us, it's about the obedience. Campus Crusade for Christ told us for years that a person has to hear 6.7 clear presentations of the gospel before they'll trust Jesus as their Savior. Seven times. You never know where you are in the process. You could be number one for some, number four for some. You may be number seven and they may believe. Don't worry about all that. You speak up anyway because it's about obedience, not outcome. Would you stand with me across the building? Do you have a passion for your one? A passion. How often are you inviting others, telling others, building relationship? How often are you turning regular conversations into spiritual conversations? It's time we develop the spiritual discipline of speaking up. St. Francis is often quoted as making this statement. Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. There's two things wrong with that. One, he never said it, never recorded him saying that. Number two, you always have to use words. The gospel has to be communicated. We have to speak up. You may be here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. Can I tell you, everything we do as a church is about you and you coming to faith in Christ is as simple as ABC. A, you've got to admit that you're a sinner and that you cannot save yourself. And by the way, I admit that. Every person who's ever been saved admit that. Like we've all messed up, fallen short of the glory of God. You just have to get to the point to say, I cannot be good enough to earn salvation. B, you've got to believe Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day. And C, you've got to confess him as Lord and Savior of your life. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I'm going to invite our staff. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.